BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. Justice Department has again asked a court to block the nation's most restrictive abortion law from being in effect while it faces legal challenges. Texas's ban on abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy was blocked for about two days last week before an appeals court reinstated it. Amid the legal back and forth, a near total shutdown of abortions in Texas, with reportedly hundreds seeking care out of state while others carry their unwanted pregnancies. The ripple effects are being felt in California, where clinics are scheduling appointments for women traveling from Texas. The impact of the abortion ban more than a month in, that's next on Forum. This is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. California clinics are feeling the ripple effects of Texas's abortion law, scheduling appointments for women planning to travel from Texas, where abortions are illegal after about six weeks before many even know that they're pregnant. There are no exceptions for rape or incest, and private citizens are encouraged to sue anyone facilitating an abortion. In an appeals court filing last night, the U.S. Justice Department called the law unconstitutional and again asked that it be stopped from being in effect while the case is pending. We look at how the law is playing out in the courts and its impact in California and, of course, in Texas. Joining me first on that is Ashley Lopez, senior reporter covering healthcare and politics at public radio station KUT Austin in Texas. Ashley Lopez, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Last week was a tumultuous week with Texas's abortion law getting blocked by a federal district court Wednesday, then essentially reinstated by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals Friday. What impact has this had on clinics and on people seeking abortions in Texas? Well, you know, abortion providers, you know, the clinics that I've talked to, they say this is really chaotic and it's not just for them, you know, not knowing, you know, from day to day, whether or not they're going to be offering the full spectrum of abortion services, that is, you know, any abortions after six weeks. Um, But it's also for patients, you know, their call volume was, 
you know, in that short window before the appeals court intervened after that lower court ruling blocked the law, you know, they said their call volume had gone up. It's just been a lot of chaos for people who live here seeking abortions and the providers, the very few providers left who are, who are able to serve them. So it's just been, it's been a really, you know, chaotic time in Texas. It's like the only word I can think of. It's just been chaotic. Did all those providers, though very few in number, did they provide services in the two days that the law was blocked? No, you know, uh, a sort of small number of them did. From my estimates, just a couple clinics um, took the risk. And I should be clear in saying it is a risk. The way that the law was written is that even if the law was enjoined at the time, they can be providers can be retroactively sued for breaking the six week limit. Um, so a lot of providers, you know, namely Planned Parenthood, which is a, a big provider here in Texas, they did not start offering ab- abortion services. And they were, you know, they made it less about the being at retroactively sued, although that was definitely in the mix, but more the expectation that this would be a short window that they could even offer abortions past six weeks. You know, kind of everyone was anticipating that the Fifth Circuit would come in and, you know, uh, block that 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 lower court ruling that allowed abortions past six weeks because the Fifth Circuit's very conservative and there's a history of the court swooping in and and undoing, you know, a a district court ruling like that. So that was the anticipation. And we have, you know, a 24 hour waiting period law here. So, you know, that makes it hard to bring in someone for 24 hours, not knowing if in 24 hours they could even come in. Um, So, you know, just a handful of providers, um, you know, took the took on the job of, um, you know, providing abortions past past six weeks and and incurred that risk. A lot of a lot of providers didn't. You know, Mm. it was almost like it was unchanged after that district court ruling in many cases. Yes. So that's providers. You also mentioned patients and. This law has been in effect since September 1st. We've Mm -hmm. seen reports of hundreds of Texans seeking abortions in Oklahoma, hundreds more in other states, untold numbers forced to carry their unwanted pregnancies. And then just last night in the filing, Planned Parenthood in a separate filing, you shared stories of numerous Texas women being impacted by the law, including one patient that they said was 12 years old, according to the Associated Press. What are you hearing on the ground just generally since this law has been effect for more than a month? You know, I heard a similar story, um, you know, because I've been talking to for the past few days, I've been kind of keenly interested in what this means for people who are victims of sexual assault, um, like this young person that was mentioned. Um, This law does not make any sort of exception for people who are raped or people who are victims of incest or survivors of incest, rather. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, the way that sexual assault often works, Um, who are not in their bodies, they're going through a lot of trauma and are not realizing that they are pregnant as early as six weeks, which by the way, is a lot of people, it's most people. Um, And so, you know, victims of these crimes are coming into abortion clinics with no options. Um, And even rape crisis counselors, like people who have the job of consoling and counseling these women um, or these people who are who are hurt, you know, don't have um, the ability to have full conversations about, um, you know, what kind of services or help they could get because, you know, even the way the law is written is even if you just provide emotional support to someone who eventually gets an abortion outside of six weeks, you could be liable under this law. So, you know, I think like people who, you know, are 
you know, survivors of sexual assault in particular um, are in a very, very tough spot, as well as the people who are trying to help them. I think this has been the ramifications of this law in general. It's not just aimed at, you know, limiting the options for the people seeking abortions, but also putting a bullseye on, on anyone who could help. You also highlight in your piece fear from some providers who say even after this winds its way through the courts, even say after if it is reversed or struck down as unconstitutional, that the damage will be hard to repair. What do they mean by that? Well, you know, it is that is more of a, a question of like, how long can an abortion provider go without providing abortions? Like, it's like anything, any any sort of organization that's 85% of their work is taken off the table, how do they survive? And let's say clinics can fi- find themselves in a situation where they can't keep their doors open because most of their you know, patients can't come in. It's like any doctor's office. If 85% of the people you usually serve aren't coming in, you know, that's a tough situation to find yourself in financially. And, and in terms of like the longevity of your, of your practice. So, you know, I think what's gonna, what abortion providers are worried about is if they start closing clinics again, cause you know, we had a bunch close after a law several years ago had passed and, you know, access in this huge state just becomes even smaller. Clinics clinics become even harder to find because, you know, if this goes on for months and months and months and clinics are forced to close, reopening a clinic is very, very difficult and often doesn't happen. So the picture of what access looks like in Texas could be very different, um, you know, depending how long this goes on. Ashley Lopez, senior reporter covering healthcare and politics at public radio station KUT Austin. Thanks so much, Ashley. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I want to bring Michelle Goodwin into the conversation now, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Her book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Professor Goodwin, glad to have you back on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to ask you about a couple of things that Ashley Lopez brought up. First, she mentioned that clinics were reluctant to try to provide services, plus it was very difficult to do that in that two-day window when the uh, Texas law was temporarily blocked. And and she cited um, a provision of the law that says anyone who provides an abortion cannot defend themselves by saying that it was done while that injunction was in place. Is that even enforceable? Well, what we've seen now are very draconian measures that have been taken by the state of Texas and also unusual measures taken by the United States Supreme Court in its refusal to intervene uh, against the law and the Supreme Court refusing to reach any constitutional law question. So when you ask, well, is that even legal? The law itself, according to the Department of Justice, is illegal because the federal law is the supreme law of the land. And for hundreds of years of American jurisprudence, that has been true. And what we see today are some very defiant efforts that are coming out of states like Texas, Louisiana, and others that are seeking to skirt 
essentially uh, federal law. And so this is highly unusual. It would seem to be absolutely illegal. But what's illegal in a time in which uh, these issues are no longer ruled by law, but instead ruled by something Mm. completely different? It sounds like you're saying or suggesting that they're emboldened by the Supreme Court behaving, especially in the way it did related to failing to intervene at the end of August. That's absolutely right. So let's be clear, even in the state of Texas, Republicans and Democrats uh, do not like this law. So even by the legislature uh, enacting such uh, a restrictive law, it is actually inconsistent with the views of people in the state, according to a number of polls that have taken place. And so there is a level of something quite roguish uh, taking place. And that's the level of argumentation that's been used by the Justice Department. But interestingly enough, also by Judge Pittman at the district court level, where he pointed out, he said, from the moment SB 8 went into effect, women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their own lives in ways that are protected by the Constitution. So even though someone might like me might say that it's actually federal judges that are saying this is so highly unusual and unconstitutional. Yes, that's right. Uh, U.S. District Court Judge Robert Pittman said that very thing and also talked about the broader implications of allowing this private right of action that's included in the state in Texas's law, uh, the broader implications on any constitutional rights potentially with this kind of quote unquote strategy. Can you just remind us quickly, and we're about to go into a break, but what happened last week? Why the the Justice Department now has to ask an appeals court again to halt this law when Pittman already did it on Wednesday? That's right. So very quickly, the state of Texas uh, then appealed, essentially challenged the lower court's ruling. And they challenged it before the Fifth Circuit, which is one of the most conservative federal appeals court in the nation. And a three-judge panel issued what is known as a stay. That essentially means not allowing the injunction uh, to be in place, at least temporarily, and said that the Justice Department would have to submit uh, another briefing in the case uh, in order for the next steps to take place, which would be, again, a review of both the arguments from Texas and the Justice Department. We're talking with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine. What are your questions on the legal events in Texas regarding the abortion law? Or do you know anyone, friends or family in Texas, who have been impacted by it? You can tell us at 866-733-6786. More after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest news and legal actions regarding abortion law and the current stakes in Texas. We're talking with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law, also author of Policing the Womb. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about the legal events in Texas, or if you know anyone, friends or family who've been impacted by the Texas law. Michelle Goodwin, I want to ask you, you were saying that right now the Fifth Circuit will need to decide, it sounds like, whether to extend its current temporary order that allowed the Texas law to resume. (laughs) So whether or not to continue to allow the Texas law to be in place while this winds its way through the courts. What are the options before the Justice Department right now if the Fifth Circuit declines to halt it? The Justice Department then will seek uh, review and remedy from the Supreme Court. And, And that would be the next step. Now, even before then, we have the Fifth Circuit has to weigh in on the uh, complaint that's been filed uh, that was directed that the Justice Department uh, file. And so the Fifth Circuit has to review that. It was only a three-judge panel that issued the stay um, that essentially stopped the injunction from continuing. And now we'll see what happens uh, before the Fifth Circuit before the case could go before the Supreme Court. What are the risks associated with the Justice Department going to the Supreme Court on this, given what we were just saying about the Supreme Court before the break? Well, there are risks at the Fifth Circuit and risks also at the Supreme Court. So the Fifth Circuit, as I mentioned before, is now the most conservative federal appeals court in the country. Uh, We saw how the Fifth Circuit would rule in anti-abortion cases just a couple years ago uh, in a case that involved a Louisiana law uh, where the Fifth Circuit upheld a Louisiana law essentially that the Supreme Court had already struck down. That brings us to June Medical v. Rousseau, and that was two years ago. And what we saw was that Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the liberals on the court at the time. Uh, We had Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg still on the court. And the uh, Chief Justice issued a concurrence, essentially saying that precedent mattered and that the rule of law mattered. And so the court couldn't just, uh, with a blink of an eye, change direction between a case that it had ruled on in 2016 and then 2019, basically involving the same law. But things have changed since then. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, passed away. Um, She was uh, replaced essentially on the court by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And what this means is that the, uh, the composition of the court is different. That is to say there are six conservative justices on the court. And it also means that John Roberts, even if he were to side with the liberals um, with a challenge coming before the court, that he's no longer that swing vote if he ever was. Right. So what in the meantime is Texas's justification for keeping this law in place while it's winding its way through or going through these legal processes and maybe going to the Supreme Court in this manner? This is a very interesting question. So William Thompson, who is a lawyer for the state of Texas, has argued that 
the civil suits brought under this uh, law were improper. Um, and he's saying because the uh, federal government here has no room to challenge this law. And, you know, the Justice Department has argued um, saying that essentially the arguments that have been made by the state of Texas really make no sense itself because Texas decided that it would leave these matters to citizens to address. Uh, basically, Texas said when it enacted the law that this is not our law. This is the law that the people of Texas want. And this is the law that will just simply allow the people of Texas to handle. And so it's a bit ironic then that the state of Texas is bringing arguments now saying, well, we do have um, we, we do have muscle in this fight. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, let me go to caller Ellen in Santa Rosa. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Um, thank you so much for this show. My question is, and I haven't heard any news agency address this, to my best understanding, in order to be able to file a lawsuit for any purpose, you have to have standing. You have to have suffered some kind of a personal loss or been affected some way, and I've not heard... I So I don't understand how Texas can say that just anybody can sue anybody for this reason. And I would appreciate clarification. Uh, Ellen, thanks. Michelle? Well, it's a great question. It's a very smart question. But Ellen, that's also the reason why um, so many have said that this is such a highly unusual type of law, not just because of its anti-abortion measures, but because it turns on its head even how we understand matters of standing itself. So Texas essentially deputizes and some would say weaponizes people in Texas to bring these lawsuits when in fact they're not harmed by other people terminating their pregnancies and being able um, to exercise this constitutional right. And so that, too, makes this law very highly unusual. Now, some will say that there are citizens' rights of action, and that is true. Um, we might think about those in the context of citizens uh, basically suing a government agency to make sure that the agency carries out its responsibilities, such as in environmental causes and whatnot. But this is, in fact, highly unusual what the state of Texas um, has navigated here. And I think that that's quite purposeful. Well, let me bring Jody Hicks into the conversation now. Jody Hicks is president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California. Jody, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So with this law, what effects are you seeing? What effects are your affiliates seeing in California? Sure. Well, well right now we are seeing an average of about two to three patients coming from Texas important to note that last year we saw some 7,000 patients coming from out of state, and it just speaks to um, Texas obviously being the crisis that's happening right now, but there's many states that have had access to abortion issues um, or access to reproductive health care uh, um, in general, and so we have seen patients coming across the state, unfortunately, um, for quite a while now. And so can you talk about what you're anticipating in terms of demand for abortion services, specifically from Texas, I understand, as you're saying, there will also be more in other states, and, and whether or not your affiliates are feeling prepared? 
You know, there, I think everyone's doing a great job of trying to prepare for this. I I always say, you know, I, I turned 50 this year and I haven't known a world without a protection as Roe v. Wade gives us. And so I think it's a little bit hard for all of us to prepare for a world that we we haven't lived in in this way. Um, So, you know, we created the future of access to abortion council that will with policymakers, legal experts and researchers, providers to really get in a room and identify what will the barriers be for people traveling and in need of of access to abortion, both coming across the state, but it's also a great opportunity to look at even barriers that we have within the state right now as people still have to travel sometimes two to three hours in California to get the services they need. So so we're doing that work and, and preparing but I think, I think it's hard to imagine what the needs are. You know, in, in Oklahoma, they've gone up some, they've seen a 600, over 600% increase in um, a, a schedule, scheduling appointments that they have to do there. So there's definitely a domino effect as other border states are filling up and it's getting you know, a longer time for people to access uh, and schedule an appointment, then they're going to the next state and the next state. So we're preparing that from uh, here in California. Well, Julie writes, I understand why some people are opposed to abortion, but it seems to me that anti-abortion activists do not know or care why people have abortions. If we as a society address the needs that abortion fills, we will naturally reduce the number of abortions in a non-coercive manner. This Texas law is coercive and violent. Jody Hicks, your reaction to what Julie writes, and also if you want to say a little bit more about not necessarily just the conditions that that create a need for abortions, but but also what you touched on earlier, which is the incredible burden of trying to access one, especially if you need to travel, and how that effect is felt disproportionately on different communities. Sure, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's exactly right. We know the data speaks for itself that the the more access you have to healthcare, um, the the less people need to have emergency type healthcare services. Um, we know that reproductive and sexual healthcare is an essential part of healthcare for, for pregnant people or people seeking to become pregnant. Um, and, and any of those, any access to that, that healthcare will relieve burdens down the road. But I think, I think what's important for us you know, the crisis for abortion rights is having a real moment right now. And now more than ever, we need to address the importance of access to abortions. Protections under the, um, as we saw under the Supreme Court should have always been the floor, not the ceiling. And we need to talk about what it means when people can't access essential health care, and it, it, it has a disproportionate impact on people of low incomes. And certainly now that we're adding the burden of travel and childcare. And, and, and I think it's, it's definitely important, um, dire really to, to talk about abortion and, and remove the stigma around it. So it, it's not, um, 
it's not something that we should talk about as if somebody should have to have barriers or it shouldn't be an easy decision or it shouldn't be, um, you know, we shouldn't trust people to be making those decisions in a way that's what's best for their future and themselves and their bodies and their health. And any barriers to those decisions affect the trajectory of someone's very life. And we should take that seriously. And right now we're seeing that play out with the people in Texas for the 7 million um, women that 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 law affects and, and what they're having to go through right now. And it's heartbreaking, really. Let me go to caller Michelle in Concord. Hi, Michelle. Hi, good morning. Um, so this saddens me a bit because, well, it takes two to tangle. And I'm curious, where are the responsibilities and uh, for the fathers, um, what where are the fathers of of the or the partners of these women who uh, are pregnant? Michelle, thanks for the uh, question. Fathers or partners, Jody Hicks? How is that playing out? I mean, I think that it's playing out like it always does, which is there there are people that have support systems and are making decisions, and their their partners are are supporting them, and then there's people that don't have those same support systems and you know the the impact always does land on the person that that has to access this care and and can't um and can't access it well robert writes what chilling precedent does this texas law set enshrining vigilante enforcement michelle goodwin that sounds like a good question for you to take and and also even in the justice department's filing we see hints of them or at least signals that they are making about the broader implications and why the U.S. Supreme Court, once it ultimately gets there, or this Fifth Circuit should be wary. That's right. So what this speaks to are long histories, uh, intersectional histories of race and sex and uh, the use of law in very abusive ways. As Justice Sotomayor uh, wrote in her dissenting opinion from the Supreme Court's shadow docket opinion, essentially what we see are bounties that have been put on the heads of people who would otherwise aid and abet individuals in terminating a pregnancy. And for many, including my myself as I wrote about it, this really is reminiscent of the fugitive slave laws that took place centuries ago in the United States, where individuals were incentivized to surveil, to spy upon, and eventually hunt down individuals, whether they really had been free or previously enslaved. It really didn't matter as as what we know from history now is that there were people who um, were emboldened by such laws to go and track down black people who were seeking freedom. And so when we see this built into the law, it's not new. And it does raise some very important questions about who really is harmed by such measures in the state of Texas. There are people who are leaving and who are going to other states, but there are many people who will stay in the state who will yes. suffer because they don't have the means to leave. And many of those will be black and brown women. Well, let me go to Kira in the East Bay. Hi, Kira. Hi. My question is just how broad does the surveillance go? Um, does it start when you buy a, a pregnancy test at the store? Are you flagged? Um, or is it when you start looking up things on your phone and searching the Internet? Or if you're in high school and you're looking um, on 
the computer at school? I mean, how far and broad does the, the surveillance go and where does it start? Kira, mm, let me go to Michelle Goodwin on that. Yes. So this is what also infuriates so many about the law is that the law is written in an incredibly broad way where it provides no guardrails around that. And so you can imagine a situation that might involve an 11 or 12 or 13 year old girl who has been raped who wants to consult with her mother or an aunt, uh, but who's mindful enough to know what's happening in a state of Texas and might be reluctant to do so out of fear that mom might get in trouble, aunt might get in trouble. The law is incredibly broad. It could affect a Lyft driver, an Uber driver, presumably someone who is um, at a grocery store or someone who is working at a clinic. It doesn't mean that the lawsuit would be successful, but the point is to give people the impression that you can bring these kinds of lawsuits and you can spy on those people and you can see whether or not you're successful enough to get the bounty and attorney's fees if you're successful. We're talking with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine. Also with us, Jody Hicks, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California. We're talking about the latest news and legal actions regarding abortion law and the current states in Texas and beyond. And you, our listeners, are joining us. You can call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqbd.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. Facebook at KQED Forum. Kathleen writes, would there be a way for women who have been injured by illegal abortions or families of women harmed or who died to sue those who prevented illegal abortion? Any knowledge on that, uh, Michelle Goodwin? Well, the question would be, who exactly would they sue? Because the state of Texas has said, well, we are not enforcing the law. It's random citizens uh, who are enforcing it. But it's an absolutely excellent question. And I think underlying that is what the motivation of the Justice Department is. The Justice Department has said by, by both defying the Constitution and frustrating judicial review, Texas is not merely protected its assault on the rights of its citizens. It has repudiated its obligations under our national compact in a manner that directly interferes with uh, the sovereign interest of the United States, and more importantly, that directly interferes with the constitutional rights of its citizens. And Louise writes, one aspect of the Texas abortion law I haven't heard addressed is the question of false or malicious lawsuits. There seems to be no protection against lawsuits against people who do not who have not assisted in an abortion. For example, for example, a family takes their teenage daughter on vacation out of state. Someone sues them saying she had an abortion. The parents may successfully defend this lawsuit. But is there any penalty against the person who brought the lawsuit? We are coming up on a break right now. Let's answer that right afterward. Again, you're listening to Forum. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're taking your latest questions on the legal events in Texas. And just before the break, Michelle Goodwin, we had that question about any protection against malicious lawsuits. Would you like me to read it again? No, it's a great question. The the listener said, well, what about people who are harmed by this law and people who are not aiding and abetting, but who ultimately are sued. And the law provides no protections for those individuals. And again, it really does remind me of the horrific time of fugitive slave laws in the United States. We know that the law, those laws themselves were complete human rights violations, but on top of how horrific those laws were, Um, There were no recourse, there was no recourse remedy for individuals, essentially individuals who were actually free or freed persons who were snatched into the grasps of slavery. And like this law, no remedies in the fugitive slave laws for people to be able to say, well, I'm the wrong person. I'm I'm not who you thought that you were grabbing. Um, Hopefully, one would say that the litigation itself before a judge would prove itself out. But even by that time in defending yourself against such a lawsuit, you've probably hired a lawyer uh, because individuals are able to bring these lawsuits in uh, in counties and cities that are close to them. You've perhaps even had to travel, miss days from work. And the state of Texas provides no provisions for protecting people who are put out by having been mistaken in aiding and abetting an abortion. Jody Hicks, with all this focus on Texas's abortion law, I'm wondering, you mentioned that this is also just a moment for abortion access, that it is a really pivotal moment right now. Can you just give us a sense of the landscape of abortion access, Um, both what we may not understand completely about how and why it is not equitably available across California, but also just the landscape nationally on this that we may also need to keep in mind in terms of the bigger picture of what is happening here? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, we're fortunate in California where our state does come in, where the federal government still refuses to pay um, through the Hyde Amendment to pay for um, abortion in any public programs. California does through our, our Medi-Cal program here in California. But there's still, there's still things like... Um, co-payments that still exist for um, insurance, insurance coverage of abortion services and whether they have to cover it and birth control for that matter. Um, There's still barriers that exist for providers in being able to um, provide care and have partnerships with hospitals when when those those are necessary for services. So we still see people traveling, you know, two hours in California for a service that they need because there there aren't there aren't providers available um, in a in a 
good geographical way. But then across the nation, you know, it gets it gets more horrific as it as it goes. There's in in the state of Texas, um, there was no state funding that would go to abortion services. So it was all um, you know, the, the Planned Parenthoods and the other providers there were raising funds on their own in order to pay for services or patients had to pay out of pocket upwards of 500 to $2,000 to receive care. Um, and, it's, and it's really just, it's a moment for us to see abortion as a healthcare service that people have a right to access and they shouldn't have barriers you know, they shouldn't have confidentiality issues. We just passed a law this year in California to ensure that people trying to access their insurance, if they're not the primary um, holder of that of that product, that they can keep confidential in the services that they need. All of those still exist. It's why we created this, um, we call it the Fab Council, to really look at, at all of those barriers here in California. But across the nation, I mean, you know, we're, we're bracing for this, uh, the challenge at the Supreme Court that will affect 36 million people um, that that are of childbearing age that will be affected by that decision and how do we ensure that people are receiving care and it's it's really again it, it's nothing more than than heartbreaking to think about people not being able to access a service that really changes the trajectory of their of their life their future um, their health um, it's it's unacceptable. There's a statistic from your report, from Planned Parenthood's report, that says in 2021 alone, nearly 600 abortion restrictions have been introduced nationwide, with 90 enacted into law, more than in any year since Roe v. Wade was decided. While this is happening, Jody Hicks, have you seen a significant waning of support for abortion access across the country? No, that's the that's the interesting part. Um, close to 80% of likely voters here in California do not want Roe v. Wade overturned. And nationally, it's it's upwards of 70%. So in terms of voters, they want to see Roe v. Wade in place, but there has been aggressive um, and syst systematic attacks on abortion rights. And I think they've been doing that at a state level, knowing that they will wind their way through the Supreme Court. And I think Texas has really sort of ripped the blindfold off of what, what people have been living under, feeling protected. Um, and you could see that even last week with the 600 rallies that, that happened through, uh, across the, the nation, that people are, are finally, um, I think, starting to talk about and understand that abortion rights are, are at stake like never before. And I and I do think you'll see the outrage that, that will happen when people understand that. Yes, I, I want to actually talk about the case that's before the US Supreme Court this term. But before I do, let me see if I can get Richard from San Mateo in here. Richard, you wanted to make a point. Yes, um, the um, one of the speakers actually uh, touched on this lightly, but I wanted to really point out uh, the incredible chilling effect that the Texas law has in that um, you don't actually need to have a successful lawsuit um, to have an effect, just the threat that somebody could get sued. And uh, as uh, one of the speakers said, the cost of having to uh, retain a lawyer, the time and effort to have to go to court to defend against this, um, I think uh, there's a real threat to uh, freedom of speech 
in that a teacher or guidance counselor or spiritual um, mentor like a pastor or, or, or a rabbi uh, would be really worried about mentioning or discussing abortion at all uh, with somebody because um, of the, you know, the fear of being sued, of being, you know, uh, having, quote, assisted in, in a subsequent mm. abortion. And that was the point I wanted to raise. Richard, thanks. And Michelle Goodwin, I don't know if you wanted to, to comment a- on Richard's point. Yeah. It's a great point. It it really is. So the, he's absolutely right. The chilling effect is in part what this law is seemingly intended to do. So not just what substantively can happen, such as abortion clinics closing, abortion clinics stopping um, their services, but also truly infringing on free speech, uh, free assembly, the constitutional rights that are from the very first, these are part of our Bill of Rights, right, that you're able to speak um, your mind and that you're able to speak about something that is a constitutional right. Well, in the state of Texas, they've now made that very difficult. And I will say this, What the Justice Department has said in its appeal, which is that if Texas is allowed to do this, then there is no constitutional right that's safe from a state basically sanctioning the sabotage of constitutional rights. And I think there's something important to be said about that. So I want to ask you, Michelle Goodwin, before the U.S. Supreme Court this term, there is this case that I alluded to earlier that has even broader reaching implications across the nation than potentially Texas and is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. Can you help us understand what the Supreme Court will be deciding this term in the Mississippi case, Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization? Thank you for that question, Nina. So there are many aspects of that law that are as deeply troubling as the Texas law. The reason that most Americans had not heard about the law, the law is not new. The law was signed into law a couple of years ago, but there was an injunction put in place by judge, a district court judge, Judge Carlton Reeves. And that too is a blistering opinion where he speaks about um, the intersection of race and poverty and so much more. It's a law that bans abortions pre-viability. So it bans abortions at 15 weeks of pregnancy as well. It provides no exceptions for cases of rape or incest. It doesn't have uh, certain features of the Texas law, but just as it is, it's deeply troubling. So one aspect of it, the pre-viability, the 15-week ban, completely Um, differs from both Roe v. Wade and also Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which protects the right uh, to terminate a pregnancy pre-viability. So the state of Mississippi is looking to do away with that. And with the Supreme Court taking up this case, if the Supreme Court sides with Mississippi, then that is at risk. And at the same time, the uh, measure that's similar to Texas, no rape or incest exceptions, that also is part of what the Supreme Court will be looking at. The Supreme Court could very well say, we'll allow the 15-week ban to go into place, but we will not hold as constitutional uh, the non-exception for rape or incest. And it's unknown what the Supreme Court will do if we read signals from what the court has done by failing to intervene in the Texas case, then that makes many people worried that the Mississippi law may be upheld. 
Now, supporters of the Mississippi law say that technology has advanced to an extent where viability has gone up dramatically, more than the 24 or in some cases 28 weeks that that sort of rose timeline would be, that, that babies born, say, at 22 weeks now have a much better chance of survival. What do you make of that argument? What weaknesses does it show about Roe? Well, it's a it's a complicated argument. Roe v. Wade, 1973 opinion, seven to two. It wasn't close. But at that time, there weren't the sophisticated medical technologies that do exist today, which we've seen mostly within the realm of assisted reproductive technology, uh, where in cases of multiple gestations, et cetera, where the technology has really pushed forward. Uh, but even so, there is a counter argument to that, which is to say there are no guarantees when individuals um, say that, well, we really can move the needle forward with regard to uh, viability and what that looks like. Um, actually, we have no scientific consensus on that. We have no medical consensus uh, on that. We don't have technology that's, let's say, um, an artificial womb uh, that does not exist. We, you know, we, in some ways, the technology is far more clunky uh, than what some would suggest who use that level of argument. Still today, the gestational tool that we use um, happens to be pregnant people's bodies, women's bodies. We're talking about the latest news and legal actions around abortions. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Jody Hicks, meantime, how are you eyeing this Mississippi case and what will be the impact immediately across the country um, that uh, your organization has has assessed? I mean, our assessment shows that if, if the decision doesn't uh, isn't a good one, um, that 26 states will be affected throughout the nation. And, and that's what we're preparing for through the FAB Council on, on how we take care of, of patients. And, you know, I just want to say, I think with Texas and, and how we're um, seeing this vigilante sort of um, way that they've, they've done this law, which I think Florida and, and several other states have already said that they'll they'll use it as a blueprint if they need to, to, to try and also ban abortion in, in some other states. You know, it's the, the means of it, the intent of it is for intimidation. And this time it's intimidation through legal ways, but, but we've seen that continue to creep up. We see it physically with our health centers and, and the security that, that we face. And we had to pass legislation to try and increase um, penalties because it has has gotten so much more sophisticated and so much um, worse. We've seen it through financial intimidation in the ways that you know trying to put up financial barriers or not pay for things or not cover things, um, and it's constant. And it's it's really um, we're preparing for it in the best way we can, but also preparing for a strategy on how we talk about it, how we tell stories, talk about the people that are affected and and really you know we're going to have to go out to and and out to the voters and elections matter and the results like this hurt people and we're preparing for for both of those strategies well michelle writes i believe it's important to point out that restriction to abortion access is also rooted in racism women of color seek abortions at a disproportionately higher rate than white women nationally these restrictive laws target women of color and those who already face great barriers to access reproductive health services. Let me see if I can go to Jim in Atlanta. Hi, Jim. 
Hello. Hey, I think Michelle makes an excellent point that's often overlooked, that both sides of the political spectrum ought to be concerned about this loss as, as it allows you to privatize attacks on the constitutional rights, whether it's the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, the right to abortion, anything. You've essentially given people a roadmap to say, hey, a state doesn't like something that they can provide a way to bypass the constitutional protections, which would have significant uh, negative consequences all across the political spectrum. Well, well, Jim, thanks for, for talking about how it broadly impacts people who may have different uh, different issues that they care most about. Let me go to Kristen in San Francisco. Hi, Kristen. Hi, how are you? Great. What's on your mind? Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit to your points about why people get abortions. I am the executive director of Pro Life San Francisco and the founder and president of Take Feminism Back. And if you look at the reason that people get abortions, 73%, according to the Guttmacher Institute, get them because they are low income and can't afford to raise a child. Well, the organizations that I run actually do fundraisers and help people financially support their futures and fight for laws that will implement policies that help people who are low income. And if you actually look at the polling over the past many years, people who earn less than $40,000 a year are actually more likely to oppose abortion. The majority of them oppose it. And I think that the points that, you know, pro-lifers don't care about people who are low income is just disingenuous, because if you look at the way the abortion industry is constructed, its entire business model is a Band-Aid solution to the society that we've created that lets capital matter more than human beings. And I think that what we need to be telling people is that low-income people matter, their unborn children matter, and that the abortion industrial complex is using this Band-Aid solution of abortion to cover up the ails of a capitalistic society instead well, of helping people who are low-income. Let me give Jody Hicks a chance to respond. Kristen, thanks. Sure. I mean, you know, abortion services are obviously a small percentage of the overall health care that is provided by um, most clinics. And uh, our service at Planned Parenthood specifically, we treat upwards 85% of um, people on public programs or um, uh, low-income um, patients. And so it, it variety of healthcare needs. So it's important to, to understand, but people make decisions about abortion for, for, for a variety of reasons. Some is, is because they can't afford to take care of um, a child. Some is because they have a child. Some is because they've um, made a decision on, on what the, it will impact their future. We, we had a, somebody come in um, that was a nurse in the beginning of the pandemic and was actually trying to become pregnant. And when they discovered they were pregnant, they were also in the midst of treating people at a hospital in emergency situations during the pandemic and really felt like that was what they needed to do at that moment and couldn't continue the pregnancy and, and continue the work that they needed to do. Um, there's a variety of reasons that people make those decisions, and it's important that we ensure they have access to do that. Well, Jody Hicks, Michelle Goodwin, thank you both for giving us an update on what's happening now. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.